You're listening to a Dharma talk from Sunday Morning Zen, a program of the Zen Life and Meditation Center of Chicago. Here we are on day number six. Number six. For those of us doing, uh, for those of you doing full time, how are you feeling? <laughs> All right, and those of you doing the three-day, how are you doing? <laughs> okay, good. Excellent. I'm glad to see that. <laughs> Hi, Kelly. Kelly's joining. Okay. Yes, I am feeling really good myself. And um, last night, when we were doing the sutra reading, and um, we read, let me share the screen, about the firewood and ash. All right, where is it? Firewood and ash. It reminded me about how much I really like this passage. So I thought I would talk about it and, I, and using David Brazier again, his commentary uh, the dark side of the moon and talking about firewood and ash again. And um, I, I titled this talk, uh, uh, Genjo Koan and Love. Right, so Genjo Koan by Dogen. So here it is. This is David Brazier's um, commentary. It's a little uh, translation. It's a little bit different than what we read last night at 4.30, 4.25. But I like his uh, translation. Firewood becomes ash. It cannot become firewood again. However, we should not see it as ash before, ash after and firewood before. We should understand the Dharma position of firewood. It has a before and an after. The before and after exist, but it is cut off from them. As for the Dharma position of ash, it has a before and an after. The firewood has become ash completely and cannot become like firewood again. After the person dies away, he does not come alive again. So the definitive Buddhist teaching is not to say that life becomes death, but rather to say no appearance or no birth, who shall. Death cannot become life. The definitive transmission of the Dharma wheel is to say this is no disappearance, who metsu. Life is one position in time, and death is also one position in time, just like, for example, winter and spring. Do not think that winter becomes spring. Do not say that spring becomes summer. And um, firewood and ash, for Dogen, these are code words for spiritual states. All right, so 
Which spiritual state do you think you are? Firewood or ash? Okay, I'm gonna ask for a show of hands. Who thinks that your spiritual state is firewood? Raise your hand. One, two, three, four, five, six, oh, seven, eight. <laughs> okay, now who thinks that their spiritual state is ash? One, two, aha, <laughs> uh -huh. there's a couple of you who think you are both. Okay, that sounds very Zen to me somehow, right? <laughs> so let's get into uh, David Brazier's commentary about firewood and ash. And our study group, let me tell you, our study circle is having a fun time with this book every third Sunday of the month. <laughs> anyway, here we go. A person is vulnerable to greed, hate, and delusion, just as wood is vulnerable to fire. However, when the fire is burnt out, the ash cannot go back to being wood. No more does a Buddha go back to being an enlightened being, an unenlightened being, sorry. All right, so when the fire is burnt out, ash can't go back to being wood. No more does a Buddha go back to being an unenlightened being. Enlightened is enlightened. The person who is like firewood is like that because he is in a trajectory that has a karmic past and future, but he does not see it. The person who is in the position of ash sees it, but it no longer seems important to him. Being now completely ash, he will not become a wood again. What has died away does not come back. The old person has gone forever. However, the person who is ash is now in the realm of the unborn. That sounds scary to me, but anyway, <laughs> the unborn. What he has discovered did not come into being because he became ash. There is no regression from this spiritual death. What he now is and has will never pass away, will never disappear. These are different states occurring at different points in time, like, win like winter and spring. Winter is winter, spring is spring. They are not the same. No appearance means not regressing. Fusho, not regressing. No disappearance means that illumination does not cease. Fumetsu. So most translators of this uh, passage generally take it, take it as being 
a theory of past, present, and future, and how they do or do not. Um, it's a it's a theory of time, time, right? But Dogen, like the Buddha, was interested in salvation, not ontology, not time. So, Dogen does not have much or real interest or no interest in real firewood, right? He's not talking about wood. He's interested in the flames of passion and the going out of that flame, going out of that fire. So, Modern interpreters, you know, they have difficulty in seeing that the favored state here is ash and death, not firewood and life. The little light of self locally occludes the great light of Dharma. We've been taught, he talks about this a lot, the little light of self, which is actually a big blinding light of self, right? Our self, the big ego here. It's pretty blinding. And when it's on, you can't see anything else. But when that light dies, and then this mirror can come into being, then we become dark, the dark side of the mirror, and we're able to reflect the myriad dharmas, compassion, we're able to reflect that, the love that is present in the world. When the dangerous firebrand person becomes ash, he or she becomes fertile. And I know that being from Hawaii, you know, after the volcano blows up and flows this huge lava, the Pele, as it's called in Hawaii, that lava, that ash is very fertile. Huge trees and beautiful forests grow from that ash. So, as we all know, I think if we keep feeding those fires, they just keep burning. By feeding, I mean thinking, adding fuel to the flames, thinking about whatever is bothering you about something, right? Or piling it on against the person you think did something to you. Right, it's just gonna keep that flame going. So Dogen is not talking about real fire here. He's, he's not talking about the nature of time. He is talking about the practicality of realization. Can we see it? 
So he's saying maybe it's the case that at some point we're deluded and later we're enlightened. But it is not a case that enlightenment is a later stage of delusion. Delusion is one thing, enlightenment is another. Okay, so firewood means the person who is liable to catch the fire of greed, hate, and delusion. The three big poisons. And then he talks about this karmic trajectory, right? We're liable to catch this flame, become inflamed because of this karmic path we're on. And, you know, the thing is, can we see that, this karmic trajectory that we're on? And we know that actions, whatever we do when we're really angry, you know, it just lays down more karmic seeds for the future. Fire breeds fire. So here's the person who has become ash. This person proceeds in faith. His life reflects the Dharma. His faith and practice are not aimed at achieving anything for his body and mind, but are a celebration of gratitude for the grace that naturally falls into her life. Faith and practice of this kind, once established, do not again become worldly fever. And he talks about niroda, niroda, the cessation, extinction of craving. That's the third noble truth, right? The first noble truth is dukkha. There is the truth of suffering. The second noble truth is, and it is caused by these three desire, you know, these three poisons. And then niroda is the third noble truth, and it means the cessation of craving. And it can also mean the mastery of fire. So ash is a symbol of niroda. And then niroda leads to the fourth noble truth, which is the eightfold path, right? The, the trace of enlightenment, the life of the enlightened person. So ash not becoming wood and death not coming back to life both mean that an enlightened person does not once again become an unenlightened person. And also, Brazier is saying there's a parallel between becoming ash, dying, and becoming the dark side of the mirror.
So an enlightened person incorporates a being of passion, yet is not just a being of passion, is not the being that used to be just a heap of firewood waiting to explode into flames. When suffering comes along, the person who experiences ash still also experiences firewood catching light. However, this fire is contained and used to good purpose, not least to understand deeply others who are also heaps of firewood. If this were not the case, then an unenlightened person might be wise, but could not be compassionate. So yes, we need to have wisdom together with compassion for it to really flower, for ourselves to really flower. So that's uh, that passage on firewood and ash. I wanted to um, share then the second part that we read last night. A person's satori is like the moon lodging in water. The moon does not get wet and the water is not broken, but it is like a vast light lodging in the smallest bit of water. The whole moon and firmament, even in so much as a dew drop on a blade of grass, just as the moon does not pierce the water, so Satori does not break the person. Just as the sky and moon in the dewdrop is no hindrance, so a person's Satori is no impediment. As for the depth of illumination, it shall measure as the height of the Dharma moon. Whether for an hour or a moment, look closely and you will see in great waters or in small, the full scale of the sky and the moon. So in a uh, David Brazier's book. This is the chapter on trust the Dharma to appear. He calls it trust the Dharma to appear. And up until this, up until about chapter eight, I think this is, you know, he's really kind of driving home the point about humility. Something that is so ungraspable at times. <laughs> I can speak from experience, all right? So he's really driving home. Humility is where it's at, right? If you have this blinding light of ego shining, like you can't see anything else. I think we can kind of maybe, you know, see this in other people. We have a hard time in seeing this in ourselves, right? 
But he's saying this is important. Humility is important. And that's the dark side of the mirror. So when you can really kind of extinguish, and it, it's something that happens with practice, I think, got to be. <laughs> that's why Dogen is talking about practice, Zazen, you know, it's all in this, this Shoho Genzo, right? When you can cut that light, then myriad dharmas can be reflected. Your part, actually, compassion is everything. So he says, our part in life is minimal and consists of being humble and steady. By this, I mean that if we think about the dewdrop, we can see the image in it when the drop is perfectly still. When the dewdrop is doing its zazen, we can see the moon, the dharma in it. Similarly, when we are not activating our ego, others can see the Dharma in us. This is not because we have become Dharma-sized. It is because we have become a better reflector. Thus, the depth of the illumination is a function, not of our depth, but of the Dharma's height. Buddha's true Dharma body is like the empty sky. According with things, it manifests form like the moon in water. This is important to Dogen. He is showing how Satori, or enlightenment, never becomes a possession or property of the person, just as the image does not belong to the mirror. The mirror has no control over what the image does. Even though the mirror is filled with it. In the same way, the person of faith has no control over what the Dharma is going to do with him or her. Nor can he or she talk about the Dharma appearing in him as his own Buddha nature. There is no ownership here. This is deeply parallel with the Christian, thy will, not mine. And the biblical idea of kenosis, which means emptying. In Philippians 2.7, it says that Jesus emptied himself, became nothing in order to be filled with the will of God. In Dogen, one enters emptiness, shunyata, by becoming dark, so that one then reflects the dharma. At the same time, the former characteristics of the person due to his or her personal karma are not destroyed, not destroyed. The old person still exists, but now her or his characteristics are used in the service of the Dharma and no longer as part of a script of self-pity and blame of others. 
Yes. The whole thing has turned around. It is as though when body and mind have fallen away, they are still available to be used, but not in the old way. A skillful practitioner of the Dharma uses whatever is on hand in the work of great compassion. Whatever is on hand in the work of great compassion. Kazan Zenji says, the wheel of the Dharma rolls constantly and lacks for nothing, yet needs something. And Brazier says, the Buddha Tao is thus this whole scheme, including the Dharma light and the darkened self. The great light is wonderful, marvelous, and eternal, and in a sense, lacks for nothing. Yet it does need something. It needs us to put our little lights out so that it can fill us and turn us into mirrors. So he's talking about also great and small awakenings. Brazier is, he's, he's saying small awakenings are moments when we realize we have made a mistake. Heaven forbid. <laughs> These are time when we climb down from some position of arrogance to which we have clung. There can also be a negative form of arrogance, a pose of self-pity calculated to draw sympathy or lenient treatment, say. A person might say, I know I'm the sort of person who takes it all upon myself. What impact is this supposed to have upon the hearer? Something like, I make trouble for myself and so you should look after me. This is really a manipulation. Letting such things go, we experience a degree of liberation. It is sobering, it may be embarrassing. Nevertheless, it is freeing. Defending a false position takes such a lot of energy and makes one into such a bore. We talk of great realization or small realization and from a self-power point of view, we think that this must be a function of the strength or excellence of the practice or effort made by the practitioner. Let me say that again. We talk of great realization or small realization. And from a self-power point of view, we think that this must be a function of the strength or excellence of the practice or effort made by the practitioner. To think so, however, is conceit. Our own delusion is incapable of making the wisdom and compassion of the Tathagata greater or less. 
We may or may not realize how the light of Buddha is reflected in us, but that does not make any difference to it doing so. When we realize it, we may rejoice and bathe in the beauty, but we shall not think that this was our own doing. All right. <laughs> are we following? Are you still following me here? You are? Okay, I'm going to continue then. <laughs> the core of practice is not effort and achievement but to gaze, wonder, and worship. Be grateful. Sometimes I am a small water, and sometimes I am a large water. Sometimes you are a small water, and sometimes large. The sky and the moon continue to be reflected in either case. Spiritual practice means to keep this in mind, the first factor of enlightenment, to investigate in detail, second factor of enlightenment, and to see for yourself, right? The sky and moon continue to be reflected in either case, whether we're a big water or a small water. This part, is the part that really, um, when I read it, I was like, oh my goodness. Our great and small lives, it's titled. Enlightened people do what is needed in the circumstances in which they find themselves. They no longer regard themselves as the admiral of their life as the admiral of your life. The Buddhas will find work for them. The Dharma will be radiant in them no matter whether they are kings or hermits. The Dharma will be radiant in them no matter whether they are kings or hermits. If they live in communities with other people who also love the Dharma, then when such people come together, there is evidently a great sense of love. The scale of this love is in inverse proportion to the extent to which members of the community are still trying to shine their own lights but demonstrating their own cleverness for the sake of self-satisfaction or aggrandizement or by other self-centered strategies. Enlightened people are productive because they are neither self-pitying nor self-praising. This may lead to them becoming great figures, but the way of the world is such that the path to greatness is stern with requirements that an enlightened person would not fulfill. This is why many of the hero sages of China, for instance, were hermits who declined high office or prestigious positions. A person living a humble life to whom few people pay much attention may be more enlightened than a famous teacher. 
I love that. Isn't that great? Because um, I can really, you know, take this personally. Yeah, the scale, the love in a community is in inverse proportion to the extent to which members are still trying to shine their own lights, uh, but demonstrating their own and demonstrating their own cleverness for the sake of self-satisfaction or aggrandizement. Yeah, so, you know, this thing about humility is so um, important. And again, I think our practice of Zazen is a way to help us see who we truly are, right? We get so confused during our regular lives, so many thoughts going on. How can we really come home to what's really important, right? We try our best and that is fabulous, but I just am so grateful for this session, for example, where we can actually sit and just settle, just settle. Take a pause, a break out of our busy lives so we can re reconnoiter, I guess is the word, reconnoiter. <laughs> Maybe we can have a little discussion at this point. I wanted to say one more thing, but you know, I've said a lot in these uh, last 20, uh, 35 minutes. So if you have anything you would like to say, you can just unmute yourself and speak. Thanks, Sensei. I find you a lot clearer than Dogen. <laughs> well, you know, I have to I have to give credit to David. And David. <laughs> he, I'm reading a lot of his text here that has, for me, been so illuminating for Dogen. Really. Very I find Dogen very difficult. And yes. <clears throat> in fact, I know from Zen message boards that I try not to go on, but I, I, I sometimes can't resist. That there's a little bit of a Dogen backlash going on out there. Really? Uh, actually, there's kind of a big Dogen backlash going on out there. It's too difficult, and why are we worshiping? But, and so, sometimes I don't understand the metaphors. Um, I mean, I think the teachings obviously are timeless, but like with the fire, with the winter, just winter does not become spring. Yes, it does. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, when it's March fifteenth in Chicago, is it winter or is it spring? Winter. <laughs> well, it depends on the year. I mean, but I, what I like about what you said and the things that David is saying is, you know, he's, Dogen's not talking about real firewood and you, you have to grasp the part of the, meta, the, part of the metaphor that, the, that um, the teaching's trying to get at and that's that ash doesn't become firewood again and, um, you know, spring doesn't become winter again. So um, uh, I just appreciated all that. And it's really good to hear um, Dogen broken down into simpler terms for yeah. me. And I give credit to David. I'm reading his words. His words are beautiful. Yes. 
if you wait long enough, the ash turns into wood. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, what is it? Is it stone? <laughs> More stone? <laughs> Petrified. <laughs> All right, I'm going to uh, continue. Um, this next part, um, I've been asked by my friend Arnie Kotler, who um, was one of the main editors. Remember Kwong Lu when Kwong Lu came to visit and gave a really great talk? He's uh, from Vietnam originally and now living in Netherlands or Denmark. Uh, I get those confused still. Anyway, he's writing another book, uh, or he's written it. It should be published in February or March. And um, it's called Wait, A Love Let Letter to Those in Despair. And so they've asked me to write an endorsement for his book. So I've, uh, I, I took this session to do some reading of it. And it's written very much in the style of Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, Arnie used to edit uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's earlier books, uh, in fact. Um, and so for those of you who remember Kwong, who is very much, um, I think, similar, uh, has a lot of characteristics similar to Thich Nhat Hanh. So this is actually like a love letter that he is writing to people in despair. And... Um, Uh, he's, it starts really powerfully in the prologue that uh, I also wanted to read to you. <clears throat> I grew up in Vietnam. Americans were killing Vietnamese, Vietnamese were killing Americans, and Vietnamese were killing Vietnamese. The bullets hit every Vietnamese family. No one could escape or think someone else will be killed, not us. In 1975, my parents, my big sister and I were on a huge ship fleeing Vietnam. It was the end of the war and things were tense. As the ship was about to depart, a bullet that seemed to come out of nowhere hit one of the passengers in the chest. We never saw who shot him, just the piercing of his skin, and he died instantly. To this day, I cannot unsee it. The memory lingers and still disturbs me, the question, what is life stays with me. Why do we humans kill each other? During the war, one Vietnamese mother was caught by an American soldier. To him, she was a Viet Cong and he had to kill her. She asked him if he could feed her baby one more time. He agreed. She breastfed the baby and then he killed her. His belief in love died with him that day. 
bullets always hit two people, the shooter and the one shot. This is a common story with many variations. My wife who grew up in Vietnam has told me many painful stories about the war that she witnessed or heard from friends and neighbors. The bullets flying in the world today will hit every family if we don't stop the violence. Although it's markedly more out of control in the US where gun control has been next to impossible, this problem is not about hunting for food or recreation or fending off intruders or invaders. This is about assault weapons available to the young, the unstable, and those who harbor racism and many other forms of hatred, as well as arms exported from developed countries to other nations and as fuel for civil wars and insurgencies. Bullets don't have eyes. They hit those the shooter hates who invariably is someone loved by someone else. If hatred impels you to shoot, bullets will inevitably hit your loved ones too or at least somebody's beloved. We need to cultivate wisdom, kindness, and activism and not look the other way. We mustn't confuse defending a treasured way of life or being safe at home with the need for assault weapons. Much gun violence takes place in the homes of gun owners. One day the weapons will be used accidentally or on purpose and someone you love will be struck. So he goes on, the way to win a war is to stop it from within. If you don't, everyone suffers. You might feel exhilarated after acting out, but you always bring your wounds back home to your family, your friends, and yourself. And to me, I am your friend. In fact, I am you. So, um, that was uh, heavy. And he writes this in a very down-to-earth way. It's like he's writing you a love letter. And he's talking about suffering and pain and trying to encourage you to stop, to wait before you do anything. Wait. And he says, I wrote this book to save lives. If you have the feeling you want to hurt someone, stop. If you want to hurt yourself, stop. Wait, every life is precious. Don't kill others or yourself with bullets, words, rage, or ignorance. Diffuse the bombs in your heart. So I picked out some lines because there's some beautiful lines in this, uh, in his book. It says, happiness and love are available in every moment, even during the most difficult moments. 
Here's another insight that might surprise you. Pain and suffering make life beautiful. This might be hard to believe while you're suffering, but the lessons you can learn from hardships are jewels to cherish. If you're suffering, it means you have a heart. Suffering is evidence of your capacity to love, and only those who understand suffering can understand life and help others. We don't need to be afraid to suffer. Suffering is a part of life. We need to learn to be vulnerable, to tolerate and not be armored. Oh, to tolerate not being armored. We have each other for support. I'm writing this love letter to you to share with you a journey to peace. When someone really listens to us, it shines light beneath the words and frees us from our notions. Being listened to penetrates our heart and resets our perspective. Love includes the ability to be present with pain rather than exacerbate it or fix it or try to make it go away. To have faith in love is to have confidence that you can look deeply. The art of listening starts with being free of our self-image. To listen means to be deeply present, aware of our heart center and without an agenda. It takes wisdom to help a flower bloom where an arrow has struck. If you try to live in accord with someone's idea of perfection, even your own, you'll fail. Genuine happiness is deeper than the dualities of joy and suffering. In that sense, genuine happiness is unattainable. It only arrives as a byproduct of living honestly, connected to oneself. Compassion, love. Only love can make us whole and bring us together. If we act from the depths of our love, we can overcome all obstacles. Love is the way. Love is the only way to happiness. I think when we practice Zazen, we're practicing love. Well, I think that's, uh, anyway, I, those are just, I pulled out from his um, book. Uh, and I think it's a, uh, really soothing book to read. Uh, and I think uh, it'll be helpful to people. So. so we have about 11 minutes for discussion or questions, if anyone has anything.
that you want to share that came up for you as I've been reading and talking? I was kind of struck by the juxtaposition of the two teachings you just gave where one, you talk, you talk about damaged people can be from, a, from an experience like combat. We had somebody in our school who got drafted to Vietnam and it took him till age 64 to come back and finish school. That's how, that's how much damage he suffered um, in combat. Um, mentally and emotionally. But there are some forms of suffering that make us grow. So, I mean, sometimes suffering does make us grow and sometimes it injures us and we need help to get through it. I just thought that was kind of two things that maybe, you know, maybe are two sides of the same coin. Yeah, and what he's uh, saying, and, and really what our teachings, our practice is saying that when suffering arises, it's best really to hang out with it as much as you can versus uh, distracting ourselves because uh, you just don't want to face it or, you know, walking away. It's best to just kind of sit down and have tea with it. <laughs> and breathe with it, and then start to look deeply, right, inward, because appearances are not all that it seems, right, in a, in a given situation. Immediately, what might come to mind is, this other person is making me crazy, <laughs> right? And right there, that statement, if you really look at it, it's, it's really the statement of a victim, right? This person is making me crazy. No, I think really they might be a stimulus in, in nonviolent communication for craziness to appear, but then you can work with that. You can then go, okay, this is how I'm feeling right now, taking responsibility, right? For what you're feeling. It's how you're working with emotions. You're just hanging out with it. And I think Zazen is a great time. Just pausing and just sitting, stopping, stopping, and really feeling what's going on. Can you afford the time? I think uh, it's becoming clear that, you know, we cannot, we have to, we have to, we really want to be skillful with how we're feeling, working with those strong emotions. And sometimes it's just hard and you just can't. So, okay, just go for a walk. You don't have to, you know, figure it out right away, you know, but it's gonna be there. So at one point or another, you'll have to look at it, right? So. Yes, Mark. No, I just, I think the image of the bombs and diffused bombs is really useful, I would say, just because of, uh, you know, if somebody else, is, someone else is setting off an emotional bomb, um, you know, do we, 
try to diffuse that? Uh, does it set off a bigger chain reaction in myself? Um, your bomb is big, but my bomb is going to be bigger. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, both diff diffusing my bomb, but also sort of thinking about maybe trying to adjust the preconditions to make it less likely that their bomb goes off or what can I do, but also not taking full responsibility for that either. So I haven't fully thought this through, but to say that that I think is really useful. Um, it's a really useful set of uh, images or metaphors for me to be thinking about. Um, so thank you. Uh, and and uh, I really appreciate that. Yeah. So, um, I think taking full responsibility for our own emotions is really important, right? That's all we can do. We can't take responsibility for the other person, but you can take responsibility for yourself and really um, be clear about what you're feeling. And then trying to understand wonder why I'm feeling this way, right? What is it that's really triggering me? What is it really? It's really a, a self-inquiry uh, and hopefully some insight will arise, arise right? If we can really kind of, kind of let go of our um, ideas that that's the not knowing part, right? We're trying to let go of all of the ideas that we have about how we think a situation ought to be going, right? Can we just kind of start fresh from a clear place? And then bearing witness, okay, this is happening. I am really upset here. I can feel my heart beating so fast. I can feel my mind racing, trying to come up with some kind of answer or response, right? So, so that's big right there, taking responsibility for yourself. But I think that's where it's at. Where the firewood, you know, burning up there. <laughs> Can we just kind of watch it, contain it, so it doesn't, you know, build up? Liz. Hi, thank you for the great talk. <laughs> Mark, I do have a question for you, or actually for everybody. Um, when you were talking about diffusing the bomb, you know, kind of the, <laughs> what's coming at you, and possibly diffusing the other person's bomb, Do you think that by you diffusing your bomb will automatically, or for the most part, have the other person diffuse their bomb and maybe soften up, back down? You know, your your tone is you know calm and 
like, okay, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna launch one on you. Um, do you think that more than likely, if you're going into a situation uh, calmer and understanding and listening, that uh, the other person will uh, back down and maybe not launch their bomb? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that makes any sense at all. I don't know, but I was just kind of thinking. You know. Okay, uh, Mark and then Doug. Uh, so maybe in a typical Zen way, yes and no, or both. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, um, try to answer briefly, which I would, um, I think uh, sometimes the other person might be triggered by something else. And, and so then it's, they're reacting. And so then how do I... Um, if it's not a bomb, uh, throw more gasoline on the fire or something like that, right? Well, while I'm not originally the trigger, but I also recognize that, uh, you know, to the extent to which I uh, have a bomb or gasoline, uh, that's my contribution to it. Uh, and that may also um, amplify the person's response to that trigger, if that makes any sense. So, um, it's okay. So that's that's a thought, <laughs> but, but a great question. <laughs> okay, thank you, Mark. Doug, uh, <clears throat> I can relay a story from about ten years ago, or so. My then wife and I went camping in a state park in Indiana, and. Uh, we found a campsite in a tent only site, pitched a tent and uh, someone with a 30 foot trailer pulled in and parked right next to us. <clears throat> and he proceeded to pull a generator and, and set it down about eight feet from our tent. And turned it on and it went on for hours. Uh, the rules in the state park were that it had to go off at nine o'clock, I think, you know, but it was chugging away for hours. And uh, I just had this slow burn of anger, but we went and complained, but they said that the park was full and uh, they had to put people in spaces, even though this was a tent only area. Uh, had difficulty sleeping that night. I mean, the generator was off at nine o'clock, but then I was looking forward to it being on again at 7 a.m. Uh, I woke up about 6 a.m. and I walked over to that generator and I started looking at it. And we were about 25 feet away from uh, the lake. And I thought, well, what can I do here? And I was thinking about, my hand was actually reaching for the gas cap 
And I was either going to pour water into that thing or urinate into it. This is one of the most angry moments of my life. Uh, just shaking from the injustice of this situation. And uh, the owner noticed me and he came out just as my hand was just this far from the, from the cap. <laughs> and he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm admiring your generator. <laughs> and uh, I complained and he said, he gave me an out. He said, I have a disabled son in my trailer and he needs to have air conditioning on. I didn't believe him, but, but, he, gave me, but he gave me an out. I put my hand on his shoulder and said something like, oh, your troubles are worse than mine. <laughs> we, uh, we packed up and left. <laughs> That's a good story, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it reminds me about the story of, um, you know, boats colliding in the fog and the one person is so angry, right? And he's cursing the other person in the boat. Come to find out there's nobody in the boat. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there goes the anger, right? But anyway, yeah. I still get angry telling that story. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, Doug, hopefully there's some ash in you. So you can contain it all, right? You yeah. can see the flame of passion arising and anger, and you can work with it. You can work oh, with it. I'll take that carbon and move it into new wood. <laughs> All right, if there is nothing, if there are no more questions or discussion, last call. Well then, let's have lunch and then we will return. Uh, for those of you who want to um, sit at three, this is, uh, yeah, yeah. So you can actually do the practice of immediacy. Is there anybody here who will be sitting at three o'clock who wants to sit at three? So you all do the practice. Okay, Patrick, then I will have the, um, the Zendo open and then you're just, it's a freestyle. So you go ahead and sit as long as you want. All right, during the time and anybody can join. All right. And yes. then say if we're doing practice of immediacy, is that on Zoom as well? No, you can do it on your own. In your okay. whole, you know, if you're doing art or music or writing or dance or, you know, yeah, you just okay. do it on your own. And then we'll return at 425 here for the sutra reading. Got it.